Hi, Karen. So glad you're all here. Here's the blessing for Torah study. Baruch Atah Adonai Elohim Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotah V'tzivanu La'asot B'divrei Torah. Amen. And may our interaction with this ancient story also illuminate our lives in good ways. Amen. Yeah. So Parshat Vayera is a long parsha. It's five chapters, and it's absolutely filled with kind of, what's the word, uh, seminal stories in the Torah. Uh, the um, angels that visit Abraham and Sarah, the announcement, Sarah's, the announcement that Sarah's going to give birth, and uh, the uh, story of Sodom and Gomorrah, um, the story of Hagar and Ishmael being banished to the wilderness, and then the story of the binding of Isaac. Hmm? It's, all wow. it's all here, yeah, this is like... It's, so, so uh, um, my impulse today is... First of all, to just speak briefly about the very beginning of the portion, but then to focus on Sodom and Gomorrah, since uh, we're slouching towards there uh, somehow (laughs) or other, Um, and uh, look at that story, and then look at at what the, the rabbinic tradition has to say to expand on it, which I find to be very interesting, and then invite ourselves to expand on the story, okay? But first, let's look at the very beginning on page 123. It says, Abraham is, it's, Elav is Abraham. Vayera Elav Adonai Be'elonei Mamre. The Eternal appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. And he, as he was sitting at the entrance of his tent at the hottest time of day. Uh, now, our translation is a pedestrian translation. If it was because what's happening here is that Abraham is having a vision. Vayera means appeared, right? Eternal appeared to him. But it says, Elone Mamre. How could you also translate that? Elone Mamre are the oak grove of Mamre. B. In. In. Of. Right? So why by? Because the translator who translated this, who, and I really love this translation for many reasons, but as you know, I've said over the years, did not read the text as a text of visionary experiences and dreams, which is mostly what happens when God is appearing. Mm. So instead it becomes pedestrian. Mm. Oh, God's hanging out by the oaks of Mamre. Mm. The translation, in my opinion, really should be, and yod Vavhe appeared to Abraham in the oak trees. Mm. Do you, do you saw, see what I'm saying? Yeah. Big difference. Or... And Abraham saw God in the trees. Mm-hmm. 
Now that makes much more sense to me than, you follow what I'm saying? So that's, my, that's important to see. This is a, again, I'm going to say it to over and over and over again. The Torah is a visionary document. The, the patriarchs and matriarchs in Genesis who experience God's presence are having visions and dreams. It's how else would you experience the infinite, mysterious creator? And yet, we are conditioned to read this as if it was some story that happened, that happened and that, of course, isn't true. Because, you know, and I'm telling you, it's a record of the visionary experiences of our founding ancestors, right? If we read it that way, God makes a whole lot more sense in the story, whatever God is. Uh, so you follow what I'm saying? And that's is such an important thing to establish and reestablish so that we can approach the text with more wonder and more open uh, mind, right? Open, not in the sense, open, like, hey, a vision. I had a dream. Oh, you'll forgive me. I had a dream last night. I don't, I don't have vivid dreams that often anymore. I had a dream last night that I was addressing a, an, a, a big African-American audience congregation, and it was a funeral. Um, so that seems pretty clear. Um, and then I had to change my clothes, and someone loaned me their suit. <coughs> But their suit was for someone for about six foot ten. And I put it on and I was six foot ten. And I had to duck under the doorway. And that was about the dream. So I wanted to say that out loud. It's not just a basketball fantasy. Right? It's something much deeper than that about some, some place I'm stepping up to. And, well, there, were bag, there was a bag of M&M's. There was this bag of M&M's that I was also part of the dream, so what can I tell you? All colors, I guess. So, I think that's relevant in terms of, I had a dream. Now, you're not six foot ten, Jonathan. You know, that's not the point. And that's not the point of visionary, of visionary experiences trying to get across to us. It's gonna, there's a message in there, there's a vision, there's a symbolic landscape. Okay. And Abraham is sitting in the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. And Vayisa Enav, Vayera is the name of the portion. Vayera means God appeared. And it comes from the root Lerot which means to see, okay? So over and over again in this portion, characters are going to be lifting up their eyes and seeing. Hagar is going to lift up her eyes and see. Abraham lifts up his eyes and sees more than once. At the mountain where he's about to sacrifice Isaac, he lifts up his eyes and sees the ram. So this is a literary, this is a piece of literature, 
and the repetition of themes is part of the story. You can't ignore it. Again, why, if a translator is making an effort not to sound redundant, loses the thrust of the Hebrew, right? An artful translation beheld, saw, looked, but it's the same word in Hebrew intentionally, not because Hebrew is an impoverished language. (laughs) Do Do you follow what I'm saying? So once again, translations need to be read with a a critical eye um, so that you can, so, and and that's why it's also great to know Hebrew when you're studying Torah or have someone around who knows Hebrew. Okay, so uh, these are all framing comments for our study together. Um, So he lifted up his eyes and he saw. And behold, three men were standing opposite him. And he looked, Vayar, here it is for the next time, and he ran to greet them from the opening of his tent, and he bowed low to the ground. So, again, forgive me if you've heard me teach this before, but it's very important to me. Um, First of all, Abraham's name isn't even mentioned yet. We don't even know who he is until verse 6. It's like, it's almost like a dream, if you follow what I'm saying. Who is the subject? You know, what's going on? Because first he sees yud heh vav in the oak trees, and then he looks up and he sees three men. And he looks up, he sees, and he runs to greet them, and he bows low to the ground. So I have a story that Abraham is seeing God in everything. Now, if you look at the end of chapter 17, the previous Parsha, we don't have to turn back to it. I'll describe it to you. Abraham has just been given a new name. We talked about that last week and has been circumcised. If this is a, a, uh, a visionary tale, then his circumcision and his new name, Avraham, this open name that has the letter of God in it, and his circumcised, which means in Hebrew to cut the covering off. Limol in Hebrew means you cut the covering off. Uh, and again, as some of you have heard me teach before, Moses is slow of speech because he's Arel Svatayim. He has a sheath over his lips, and it needs to be removed. The part of the penis that's circumcised is called the orla, the sheath. And then later in the Torah and in Ezekiel, it says, cut off the orla around your hearts so that you can love me. So the circumcision is a, is a removal of a sheath that's preventing Um, the vision, right? So Abraham is sitting in the entrance of his tent right after he's uh, been circumcised, he's been opened up. Uh, The rabbis say that he's sitting in the tent recovering Mm -hmm. from the surgery. 
and that God is coming to pay him a, a sick call uh, to emphasize how important the mitzvah of visiting the sick is, which I really like that teaching. Uh, so what if Abraham is seeing God in everything and he's having an ecstatic experience where the covering between our regular waking reality and the shimmering magnificence within all creation has just been dissolved. And he sees God in the trees. And then he sees the three men. And he runs and he bows down to them and he says, come, come let me feed you. Maybe he's in an altered state. That wouldn't occur to us in the way we were taught to read the Bible. But the way we were taught to read the Bible was in many ways pathetic. When you think about the subject matter versus the way we were, we were supposed to read it, like it was an article in the, in the Life magazine or something. So, again, I'm asking you to keep cranking your heads around to the Bible not being a newspaper article. Okay, so Abraham is seeing God in everything. Abraham is, the, the veil between the worlds for Abraham is thin. And so for him, perception is expanded, altered. Then we can approach the rest of his story and see how we might read it then. Do you follow what I'm saying, everybody? Yes, Amy. So perhaps the reason um, uh, Abraham's name is not mentioned until six is that this first portion is supposed to be more kind of universal to anyone who is reading right. this section. That would be a beautiful interpretation following my reading. There are many other ways you might express that too. I was going to say that, you know, it, originally it wasn't divided up like this. Right. So the Allah is just continuing from the previous paragraph. Right, right. The plain meaning is uh, that all these pages of commentary separate the, age, the end of chapter 17 from the beginning of chapter 18. In the Torah scroll itself, they're contiguous. Well, they're not even chapters in the Torah scroll or originally. They were divided into chapters later. That's right. But, but also... That I is thinking, important. I was thinking of the Oaks of Mamre and the Burning Bush. Adonai has a habit of appearing to us from um, growing nature. And our tradition takes that by calling the Torah a tree of life, mm -hmm. right? Because the tree metaphor is such a powerful metaphor for, for us humans, those beautiful trees that with their roots drug stuck in deep, sunk deep, and their branches reaching to the sky, yeah. So trees become a way, of, trees are a place where God lives. Yes, where we experience the divine and which become uh, metaphors for the divine. Uh, uh, what's that word? Semiotics? I don't know if I'm using it right. Uh, a symbol system where it's both a tree and for us it's a, sim it's a symbol system that we incorporate. And uh, I was also wondering whether, and again, these are all, these are all imaginative interpretations. I wonder if during those verses... Abraham is in a state where he has completely forgotten himself. Where, you know, he's so, he's so exalted, he's so... Hmm? Maybe he's on a drug because it must have been painful to be circumcised. Oh, but they didn't... Okay, so... 
Uh, so he could be fevered. He could be fevered. And we have many records of people who want to have these experiences inducing altered consciousness through fasting, through drugs, through, yeah, yeah. It's open the door. There's lots of ways to open the doors of perception. Because there was no painkiller for, for the operation. Yeah. Yep. So we can play on all these levels, um, but uh, I'm still going to hold to my uh, my um, hypothesis that this story is trying to tell us about an experience that's hard to describe. He must have been dreaming because he said, I'm going to feed you and, you know, come and sit down. You're weary, you're tired, you're hungry. And then he prepares his food. <laughs> it must have taken five hours at least well, he, to make this meal. Sarah did, I mean, but she's starting from flour and water and they're starting from a live animal. This is like not what you give to somebody who's hungry. <laughs> <laughs> well, there, there's a very funny orthodox midrash on the fact that he serves them milk and then the cat. He serves them, he serves them veal and cottage cheese. <laughs> so this presents a problem to traditional Jewish commentators. For me, the laws of kashrut hadn't been um, elucidated yet. Uh, but uh, so there's so many levels to read this story. But, but that says that there were hours in between, which lets you have time to do the slaughter. And <laughs> oh, I see. That's what. <laughs> so then, or if it's a visionary story, here's the food. Right. Right. right in my dream, right. I'm five nine, and then I'm six ten. Right. And in dream time, there is no time. That's the right. point. Right. In, there's also no time in visionary time. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and you know, when you lose all sense of time, that's because you're in a zone where you're not, you're not watching the clock. You're looking in the trees. Mm-hmm. Right? Time is relative, everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Harris? Have you come across any, in your time, spoken to any... Uh, Adult men, grown men, who have had circumcision as an adult. Yes. And have they expressed any kind of spiritual awakening as a result of that, or near the time period that that happened? Uh, n- um, I don't know. However, the circumcision itself is not the spiritual awakening. It's a symbolic act performed on the body to represent opening ourselves to God. In other words, it's not causal, it's associative. Right. So, so I, but that would be an interesting thing to ask uh, adult males who've chosen to be circumcised what changed for them in their perceptions afterwards. Did it like tilt the scales of spirituality for them? Like, did they now feel a connection that they didn't a day before? I would guess that it would vary individual to individual. Yeah. Karen? Um, I'm just going to share with the group and a little bit in conversation with Gwen um, that it's my belief, and I've been developing this thesis now over many years, that the separations of chapters and the separations of the partiot are very deliberate 
and are actually a way for whoever it was who devised this to actually communicate a lot of information with us just on the basis of how these things are separated. And mm -hmm. sometimes with the numerical equivalence through which they They, they loved, the, the, the framers love numbers and they play with numbers. So it's not accidental, it's integral. It's, yeah. in, it's integral. So first of all, this is the fourth parsha. The fourth of the weekly readings. And I've been just really loving Avi Gile's book on the letters. And um, what came up for me this week, just serendipitous, but now I, I, I see this, is um, the, the um, letter Dalit, which is the number four. The fourth letter, Dalit, means? It's a doorway. Door. Hmm. Dalit means doorway. Hmm. Oh, okay. And Dalit is a pictogram, originally, of a door. Hmm. A tent flap. A tent flap. Or a pubic triangle or a breast. Hmm. That embarrasses me. <laughs> Different doors that we have. Okay. Karen, did you want to say more? And I'll just add to that to um, augment that is that we're also here on chapter 18. And the number 18, as we all know, is Chai, which is life. But also part of my understanding and thesis is that the, uh, the way a lot of this is organized is through the number seven. That seven is a system of counting. And so um, if you're counting, let's say if we're counting in 10, we're in base 10, and um, you know, 10 equals 10, and then 11 equals one. And if we're counting in binary, you know, we have one and two, and then three equals one. And if we're counting in sevens, um, 18 is, let's see if I could describe it, is a four. Right, seven, mm -hmm. 14. 15, 16, 17, 18, and base 7. In, mm -hmm. Right, so it's the third oh. level of um, 4. So it's also, it augments the number 4 in terms of this spot. That's mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Gwen? So, yeah, no, they were very deliberately divided up like this, but that was hundreds or a thousand years after they were first written, so you have to read them both as connected and as deliberately separate. Correct. But also, aren't the line numbers and the, the sections, those are Christian that we've adopted, that that was the... Uh, the verses, the the verses and the chapter numbers are actually, were from the Christian Bible, which yeah. was eventually incorporated into the Hebrew Bible. And uh, let's just say it's all God's plan, and here we are it's today. It's all God's plan, just because have the deliberate Talmudic mind that the Parsha's divisions do. Right, the, par the divisions between the Parsha's are, are most significant. Uh, and they, the rabbis decided to start this, and remember, Parshas get their name, just as book, all ancient books in the Jewish tradition get their name, based on the first significant word in the Parsha. And that word is significant. It wasn't chosen by accident. And the first word of this Parsha that the rabbis decided these next five chapters would comprise is, and God appeared. Right? So that's the, so you have to look for that. The, God was seen. Um, and so um, that's really significant. Uh, just like um, the previous portion is called Lech Lecha. It's not the first word of the portion. It says, Vayomer Adonai El Avram. And God said to Abraham, Abraham, Lech Lecha, go forth. It's the fifth word, fifth and sixth word. But it's the word that stands out. Uh, because you, you know, they didn't name the portion and God. 
They didn't name the portion Sed. They could have named it Abram. I mean, Noah is named for his, that portion is named for Noah. But the rabbi said on Lech Lecha, go forth. And then this Parsha, they decided the next stage was, would be, and see God. Right? You can see how, though, this is, this, there, was some, there was a lot of intention in the way that was done. Um, good. Thank you, Karen. Uh, um, uh, I just should say as an aside that Gunther Plout of Blessed Memory, who was the one who wrote the commentary uh, for this edition, he lived to be like 99. I think he just died a couple of years ago. Um, loved numbers. And so if you're ever enjoying yourself looking at the notes below or in the gleanings afterwards, he will take numerical sequences that make no sense to us and show us the actual arithmetic sequence that then becomes, oh, of course. For instance, my favorite is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham lives to be 180, and Isaac lives to be 100 and, oh, I'll forget. 75 and, or Abraham and Isaac lives to be 147. Okay. It turns out it's uh, seven times, it's, it's, it's three times seven squared and four times six squared and five times five or something like that. They were having fun with numbers. We're thinking, how could someone be so old? They weren't thinking that at all. They were thinking, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, here's a nice progression to link them, because they weren't interested in the right answer. They were telling their story and weaving in all of these kind of oh, connective tissue with words and numbers into the story. So I, it's important to be aware of that. So I have a question. Can you say something about like when you talk about the rabbis and they like when sure okay how. okay i'll i'll do the i'll do the elevator speech and but we'll i don't mind you asking at all what our best guess historically is that the five books of moses were um, come into come into their form that we're aware of now sometime around the babylonian exile in the 6th century bce the people who are responsible for these texts are called the scribes. The scribes are not a, um, that, that's not like being a tailor, you know. The scribes were the ones who were literate. They were the keepers of this, they, of the tradition. And the scribes not only had a written tradition, but they had an oral tradition of what the written tradition means. That's why, going back right to the beginning of Judaism, uh, there is something called the written Torah and the, something called the oral Torah. Um, the scribes later get the title of rabbi. The scribes and the rabbis, those, the keepers of the text. As keepers of the text, their job was not just to be uh, um, perfect copyists. They weren't, they weren't, they weren't copiers. They were both copiers and interpreters because it was their job to teach this sacred text to everybody. So starting in about 500 BCE, 
a class emerges in Judaism who are known as the scribes or the rabbis. And um, their interpretation of the text travels alongside the written text for hundreds and hundreds of years. In writing. Not in writing. Okay. It they only gets committed to writing at a time after the Romans destroy Jerusalem and the center of Jewish life and study and everything is destroyed. It's they start to commit it to writing so that it won't be lost. So the oral Torah eventually gets written down. And it, that literature is called rabbinic literature. It includes the Talmud. It includes the Midrash. It includes um, other related literature that emerge from like the second century all the way up to this seventh, eighth, ninth century, uh, when we move into another phase of Jewish history. Is this is this being clear, everybody? Mm-hmm. We are the inheritors of the rabbinic tradition. There were other interpretive traditions of the Torah, such as. Hmm? The Karaites, who are another sect of Jews who didn't accept rabbinic authority. And there are still a few Karaites around in the world. And. Are you what? Hmm? She's one. You're a Karaite? Karaite. A Karaite. <laughs> if anybody goes sees the exhibit on Jerusalem at the Met, there's a lot about the Karaites there because they were very active in They Jerusalem. were very active in the Middle Ages. And they rejected the rabbinic authority to interpret the Bible. Eventually, rabbinic Judaism was ascendant, right? But who else? The Christians. They have their own totally, they were Jews originally, who had an interpretive tradition that took a completely different path from the rabbinic interpretive tradition. (laughs) But here's what I'm telling you. So what I'm saying is that we Jews, who consider ourselves Jews today, are by and large the inheritors of the rabbinic interpretation of the Torah. Now, I'll get you in a second, Harris, because I just want to finish answering this question. In the last 200 years, since, since the emancipation from the ghettos and the, our, our incorporation into European and American society, um, rabbinic Judaism lost its hegemony, it lost its monopoly on Jewish life, which it had had for at least 600 years, um, because new versions start to pop up, like Reconstructionism, right? So I take the rabbinic legacy as my legacy, but I don't feel beholden to it as the only source of my interpretation. That is a modern phenomenon that we're in the modern world, we've broken out of our, um, our uh, we've left the, our, our, our various ghettos, and now we're interacting with all the intellectual traditions of the world, right? So modern scholarship has made rabbinic Judaism, it's still the center of what I do, but it doesn't have exclusivity. Whereas in the ultra-Orthodox world, <clears throat> they have forced modernity away so that they could continue to treat rabbinic tradition as the only interpretive tradition. Because over all that time, everyone stuck to that tradition? Over all what time? Well, from the beginning of this rabbinic... Mm, No, no, listen to me again. The rabbinic tradition um, struggled 
with other streams of Judaism in the early centuries of the Common Era and eventually emerged as mainstream by er, by the Middle Ages. But from the Middle Ages to the advent of modernity, yes, Judaism was the Torah and the rabbinic interpretation of the Torah. Since since modernity, the ultra-Orthodox have done everything they can to maintain a wall against modernity and maintain that rabbinic Judaism interpretation is still the only legitimate interpretation, whereas other Jews who've embraced modernity, like myself, um, use this, study it, revere it, but don't give it exclusivity as the only right interpretation. Does that make sense? Yes. Does that help answer your question? Yeah. So like what we're doing now. What we're doing now is, is, what you're talking is about. very much in the rabbinic tradition. However, I'm also including references to mytholo- mythological studies, um, literary criticism. Um, you understand what I'm yes, saying? For me, that just makes it richer. Yes. But different rabbis have done that. You know, at one point, Maimonides, people, there were people Burn trying him. to excommunicate him. Rather, right. It's not, it's not, not monolithic. Had one vision all the time. It's not, no. It's been a, there's, since there's no Jewish pope, thank God, <laughs> there's always been a, a battle of ideas yeah. in Judaism, always, even in the rabbinic tradition. And there have been surges of new thinking in the Middle Ages, philosophical approaches to Judaism, in the late Middle Ages, um, mystical and ecstatic approaches to Judaism that have reinvented the levels of interpretation that we can take. So that's a very important thing you said. It has not been static, and yet at the same time, there has been a sense of we're all pulling on the same end of the rope somehow that modernity takes apart and scatters us intellectually in a different way. Uh, but Gwen's point is really true. As a student of history, you find that there was never any golden age. There was always somebody coming up with uh, some new idea that they hated, whoever they were. <laughs> right? Uh, now, Harris has been waiting, and I'll get the other questions. Yeah, a step back to the scribes slash rabbis. It seems like it would have been a big event to go from the oral tradition to the written. Was there a single scribe rabbi that got credited? Yes. Yes. It would take a rabbi who had incredible cred, street cred, credibility, to to commit this sprawling oral tradition to writing. And his name was Yehuda Hanasi, known as Judah the Patriarch. He was the leading light of the Jews of the land of Israel in the... um, late second and early third centuries. And he felt it was time to create a compendium of Jewish laws and practices and teachings uh, that could be uh, manageable. And he wrote something called the Mishnah, which means the teaching. And it has six volumes. Um, And it gained, um, what's the word? Prominence. Yeah. Legitimacy. At the same time, by creating a limited document, which he felt was necessary and he had the authority to do it, the self authority, he didn't have, he wasn't elected, you know, 
He was a Nasi, which means a patriarch. He had authority in the Jewish community. He was the one responsible amongst the Jews of Palestine for interaction with the Roman authorities. Um, my brother and sister-in-law live in Sipori, where Yehuda Nasi lived. It's a whole other interesting story in the Galilee. I'll, I'll get to you, but I have to finish this thought. Um, as soon as that was created, a debate emerged about what he left out. And so additional things got written down. The Mishnah says this, but I have a tradition that says this. And that expands and expands so much that the Mishnah becomes the foundation for a much larger work called the Talmud. The Talmud, over the next four centuries, an even larger compendium emerges based on all the things that Yehuda Nasi left out. Okay, I'll leave it at that. That's a good description. Has anyone seen a Talmud page with each page has the Mishnah in the center and then the comments all right. around it? Right. The way it got, when, when typesetting was invented and books started being published, uh, the typesetter did this brilliant thing of putting the Mishnah text in the middle, the Gemara below it, and then around it all the commentaries on the Gemara, and then around it, the, what are called the super commentaries on the commentaries, and ran out of space. <laughs> In the age of the internet, a more appropriate, a, a more on-target Talmud page would be the piece of Mishnah with hyperlinks okay. to countless yeah. interpretations. Wow because it's a living tradition. So really, the internet is a beautiful way of visualizing a more three-dimensional and uh, interactive conversation than the printed page ever could. Uh, um, Leah, Diane, Bob, Gail. So quick question, in this, you, you spoke <coughs> Excuse me about the the Orthodox holding on to the tradition in all these other factions, including Reconstructionism, Reform, what have you. Right. The question over the last two hundred years has been: Do we embrace modernity, and if so, how do we keep being Jewish? Where do the Hasidim fall into that? Into the hold off modernity. Right. Right. So, okay. Right. Where does Avi Weiss fall? You know, Avi Weiss falls on the cusp. He's a modern Orthodox rabbi. Modern Orthodoxy is not ultra-Orthodoxy. Modern Orthodoxy was a self-conscious effort by Samson Rayfield Hirsch in the late 19th century and his followers to figure out how to continue to be an observant Jew, a, a strictly observant Jew, and still participate in the mainstream of society. And that, and that was modern Orthodoxy. Modern Orthodoxy's flagship is Yeshiva University, whose motto is Torah umada, which means Torah and science. Mm -hmm. Right? So modern orthodoxy is one response to modernity. Uh, uh, just like the conservative movement, the reform movement, the, and the ultra-orthodox movement is a response to modernity. The response is to try to reject it. Right? But you still have cell phones. You know, so it, it's like, it's all very complicated. Uh, but I want you to understand that all of us in the la over the last, since, since, since the advent of modernity and the breaking down of the ghetto walls, every Jew who's a Jew has been trying, and every Jewish community has been trying to figure out what the balance is. And it's thrown us into great disarray. Yeah. 
because we don't we we're not protected by our the by by the externally imposed um, limitations upon us in the modern era. Uh, who is next? I am getting back to how we read this text. It occurred to me that in my story, when I'm with my grandchildren, I tell them of this ongoing story in which, of course, they are the heroes. Yes. And have adventures and problems and make mistakes and all this stuff, you know. Yes. Uh, and. Um, I constantly have to remind myself, don't worry about the story being logical. They don't care. No, you know? they don't care. They can all of a sudden be at the top of the building or, you know, underground or in the next step. They don't care. And, and that's just the way what you were saying about this. Right, it's our story. It's our story. And right. my It's mind, not our biography. Right. When I'm telling it's, stories, my mind is like, well, that doesn't make sense. That's not <laughs> logical. You know, it doesn't matter. Right, right. Let that go to the extent that you can, but you don't have to let it all go, because that's a, one of our critical faculties that's good to use. Yes? Getting back to the text, there's an interesting flip-flop here. In the second sentence, it says, He, Abraham, lifted his eyes and saw, and behold, three men were standing over him. Nitzavim Olav. Right. Then, in sentence eight, it says, Abraham put the food before him, and he stood over them. The who omeid alehem. And the word is omeid here. Right. So, you know, first they're standing over him, mm -hmm. and then he's standing over them. Tachat ha'etz, under the tree. Under the tree. There's that tree again. <laughs> So now he's standing over them under the tree. Boy, that's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, I mean, I would say on one level, it's about, it, and the rabbis are very, very, really, really push this, and I believe them. They, Abraham, one of the, one of the, um, one of the um, archetypal qualities that Abraham represents to the rabbinic tradition is welcoming guests and strangers. And that's even more significant because of the, this story then leads right into the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, where the people of Sodom explicitly do not welcome guests and strangers. So it's an incredibly high value. Now, historically, in Bedouin culture still to this day, hospitality is, is more important than anything. If somebody shows up at your door and they need shelter and food, even if they're your enemy, you take them in. That's, that's it. Uh, they need water. They need some food. Um, but the, the Jewish tradition, the rabbinic tradition, then elevates this quality beyond its cultural, specifically cultural origins, into one of the highest qualities of how you treat the stranger. He right? loved. Yes. He welcomed them in his own, you know, even in that Sodom and Gomorrah environment. He welcomes them in, and then he does this very strange thing, right? Lot is Lot. Lot says like Abraham's, uh, I don't know, good for nothing, not good for nothing, but like his nephew keeps getting in trouble, you know. Um, but a little got through. He welcomed them at the gates. He does welcome them, yeah. and um, so I would say one way this to read this, therefore, is that. First, they're standing over him, and he responds by putting them under the tree and feeding them and standing over them to show the, uh, 
the hospitality that Abraham shows. But I'm sure there's many other things we could think of from that verse. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Gail is next, and then Bob. Okay, Bob. Um, I'm back to the oral and the written yes. tradition. And you answered most of my question about the uh, writing down, the scribes writing down what they knew of the oral tradition. But is there any archaeological or other evidence of the written tradition before? Do we have different writings of the five books? Um, or do we have archaeological evidence before the uh, dispersion of Jerusalem with the Romans? Yes. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls and other scrolls that have been found in and around the Dead Sea um, uh, give us an incredibly good picture, not a complete picture. But a good continuity. That most of the Bible, as we know it. Most of the five books. The five books for sure. Yeah. But other books of the Bible weren't necessarily, other books of the Hebrew Bible were not necessarily fixed in the canon at that time, the, the entire Hebrew Bible, all 24 books of the Hebrew Bible, because there are some variations okay. in the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been found and deciphered. Now, there was this fantastic, fascinating thing that with MRI technology, they can now, they have, they have lots and lots of papyrus and parchment that are too fragile to unroll, and they can image them, and then the computer can can then on the screen, and they're getting this, there is now going to be so much more archaeological evidence it's of the written, what was available in the first century BCE. In the second, we don't have anything older than that. And what they found that they were writing the article about was a piece of Leviticus from the first century BCE, from the Dead Sea on papyrus, that matched word for word our Leviticus that we have today, which is fascinating. It's to say that in the transmission of the text over more than 2,000 years, there's been almost no variation. I think that's rather astounding. Uh, yeah, yes, Gail. Could you talk about Ezra the scribe? Yes, when I re Ezra the scribe, when I referred to around 500 BCE, I was talking about what we know from the book of Ezra, which was one of the last books in, in the order of the Hebrew Bible, of the Tanakh. Uh, it's named after Ezra the scribe, who seems to have been an historical figure, uh, who, when the Babylonian Empire fell and the Persian Empire took over, and the Jews who'd been exiled to Babylonia were now under Persian rule, petitioned the Persian king for permission to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. He gave them permission. And Ezra led a large contingent back to Jerusalem. And he's known as Ezra the scribe because it says in the book of Ezra, and Ezra took out the scroll of the Torah and he assembled everyone in the town square and he read the Torah to them and interpreted it for them. So, we don't know too much about Ezra, except for stuff like that. But we do, therefore, assign him as the progenitor of the rabbinic tradition. Because it says specifically, he had a scroll, 
He opened it up, he read from it, and he translated it and explained it to everybody. Why? Why did he have to? This is in somewhere in the 5th century BCE, coming back from Babylonia. Why? Because they didn't speak Hebrew anymore. They'd been in, the, the Jewish community in Babylon had been there for, se, for 70 to 100 years. They spoke Aramaic. That was the lingua franca of the, of the of, and so he had to read the Torah to them and interpret it, first translate it into Aramaic, and then explain it to them. So that, does that help, Gail? I just, I, I thought it was worth Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? So we can pretty much date when, what do you call it, the, the, the last possible date. You know, we, it could have been written down before, but we know that by this time, the Torah, the, five, the scroll was a scroll, it was a fixed text, and there were scribes who would read it and interpret it and translate it to, yes? Isn't there a reference someplace of a, of a scroll being found which turned out to be the book of Deuteronomy? Yeah. Which we think was the book of Deuteronomy, yes, and that's in the, in the 7th century BCE. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's under King uh, Josiah, um, uh, uh, where they find a scroll and the king reads it and it explains and the children of it, it says in the book of Kings and the Israelites had so far strayed from what was in this scroll that um, uh, uh, there was a religious uh, uh, um, purge under that king to make sure everyone was doing it right. That's right, that's one of the, I don't know if purge is the right word, but that's kind of what comes to my mind. Hmm? Revitalization. It could be either a revival movement or a purge, depending on the quality of the leadership. That's right. Depending whether you like what they're telling you to do or not. Yeah. Uh, Julia? So, so when did it start being sung? When did the Torah start being chanted aloud? In all likelihood, it was always chanted aloud. In all likelihood, it was always sung. Uh, um, and at some point, the method of singing it got more standardized and notated. I see no reason why it would have been read aloud and then at some point started being sung because think about the other bardic uh, traditions in the ancient world. How do you remember all this stuff? Through rhythm and through incantation. And through, do you know what I'm saying? So my guess is it was always sung. I was going to say, it's hard to travel with the Torah scroll. In a time where there's no printing press and everything's handwritten and you're dispersed and poor, Torah scrolls must have been pretty sparse. They were somebody, very, they were very rare. memorized huge portions of it and this traveling scribe and sits down and recites it from memory. Yes, be a much more yes. any theory. scholar scribe would have memorized their Bible, <laughs> right? They would be, you know, our feats of memory are much diminished in these days, but in some of your lifetimes, you had to learn in school long feats of recitation, right? I only had to, re yeah? Well, I think it was supposed to be recited in the marketplace twice a week. Yes, yes, yes it was. There's no way. That's like yes, so what I'm saying is that I don't think it was ever uh, uh, declaimed. I think it was always sung because the Torah scrolls themselves were so rare um, that uh, it, there needed to be a way to commit it to memory. Well, that's, my, that's my reasonable guess. Mm -hmm. And we don't 
memorize long links of things, and most people's brains can't do it, but if we all sat down here for um, a couple of days and wrote every word of every lyric we could hum ourselves, we'd each create a book of some sort. Oh, right. How many lyrics do you know? That's right. <laughs> That's right. Or if you had to learn the Gettysburg Address when you were a kid, or, or it's not that long, but the, we have that capacity, no question about it. In fact, in the rabbinic period, of when in the Talmudic period, when all this back and forth was going on, and there were so many traditions to memorize, uh, it appears that the rabbis, when they spotted a student with an exceptional memory, <clears throat> they would get a special role called the maturgaman, which means the reciter. And uh, they were like a walking um, reference library. And that was their task in life. I don't know if it was a good task, but I'm sure they got good meals from it. Um, but yes, people with extraordinary memories. And then, of course, we know that, I'm just thinking out loud, but certainly people on the autistic spectrum and savants who can do feats of memory that, that just completely defy our understanding. I remember a kid in a camp, when I was a counselor at a camp for uh, emotionally disturbed kids uh, would sit down with, in the counselor's lounge with the New York Times every morning and memorize the entire New York Stock Exchange page and spend the day telling us, you know, every stock and every... It's like, there must have been people like that in the time of the rabbis, you know? They had a job. It's good. <laughs> uh, Gail? You know, we're so used to reading. Yes. That, that's what I'm saying. Is, you know, the fact that it was recited twice a week... Oh, thank you. Yes. Totally present. You, know, you went shopping, and there was somebody chanting it, and I think with a translator also. Yes, there was a translator. And everybody heard it. I want to also add, I know that um, the Vedas also used to be chanted. Hmm. I'm not surprised. Yeah, but weren't the Homeric uh, stories also? Yes, yes. I'm saying that this, is, this was common. This, yeah. was, this was how the ancient oh, world... Right. Yes. Right, right. It's part of a cue to help you remember. Right. What we think of as a redundancy in the biblical text is actually almost, is actually almost certainly a musicality. Um, and like a song. We don't get tired of a refrain on a good song. But when we're reading it, if we're reading it, a good song in a boring voice, it's going to get really boring fast, right? I think that's really important. Thank you. And you know, I met a Korah player from West Africa many years ago, and his family, his, his family, his clan, were the Korah players. And the Korah players were the historians, the, the story keepers of their tradition. And he could sing for hours what was essentially a 25-generation lineage with stories of his tribe's history. It's, that's what we did. You know, and then we figured out slowly technology that we could... Uh, as it were, uh, offload that capacity to. And there's a plus and a minus to it. L you know, universal literacy is fantastic. And there's also something you lose along the way. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. Thank you. So, it, so I never know where this discussion is going to go. But in the, in, the, in the short time that we have left, um, I, I want us to turn the page. Well, this sets up our... Hi, Cornelia. Um, we're on page 124. Yes, Harris. Can an oral tradition 
and that will also be because when she was speaking, when she was speaking, she went like this. Can it also be bodily gestures? Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. With the storytelling. I'm sure any good storyteller is totally embodied in their storytelling. I agree with you, absolutely. Even listening on the radio, you lose something from the from the first te- from the first person well, teller. We used to tell stories, and we have that with plays. Yeah. So why not all of those modalities for this right. giant book? Yes, absolutely. And actually, we know a little bit about that because the Psalms, which were definitely music, uh, we know that for certain, um, have have instructions for the orchestra and the conductor at the beginning of the psalm. When it says, Lam uh, for the conductor, and then it'll say, Al Hagitit, on this instrument called the Gitit. Uh, so yes, there, it was embodied. Yes, I agree. So what I want to share with you is that, look at verse 16 on page 124. <laughs> The men went up from there and gazed down upon Sodom. So we're up in the Judean hills, and anyone who's been to Israel knows that you can see the Dead Sea Valley is right there. If you look down on it, it's 3,000 feet under you. It's the Great Rift Valley. Abraham going along with them to send them off. And yud heh then thought, okay, I love this. Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Abraham is certain to become a great and populous nation and through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed for I have selected him now selected look at the Hebrew in verse 19 ki yedativ I know him and what is yada in the biblical sense intimate knowledge Selected is pathetic. <laughs> it's a pathetic translation. For I love this guy. <laughs> and he's got to teach his children and those who come after him to keep the ways of yod doing what is right and just, so that yod may fulfill for Abraham all that has been promised him, and one of the things that's been promised to Abraham is that he shall be a blessing. And he will be a na- great nation, and he will inha- but he will be a blessing to the humanity. Abraham's, pr- the promise to Abraham is that follow, th- follow this path, and you will be a blessing to all of humanity. Um, why? Again, because of the insight. And there's that word sight again. He's going to bring to the nature of, uh, of the universe. Uh, yes? Um, <clears throat> shall, should I hide from Abraham what I am doing? What, what, what is the interpretation of what he's referring to? What he's going to be doing? What he's that? about to do. What about to do. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. What I'm about to do. Okay. Probably would be a better translation. Um, verse 20. Now, he said, now uh, you know what it is? It, look at 17. God is thinking, and God says. So it's all happening at the same moment. Mm. Um, God's about to say this, and God's thinking, should I tell Abraham? Mm. Now, I love that our Bible has God thinking about, 
should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? I love that. Um, anyway, Bob? Uh, the quote about God is thinking or saying to himself and mm-hmm. us, so he may teach his children and those who come after him and so forth, so that the eternal may fulfill for Abraham all that has been promised him. Mm-hmm. Uh, do, is there any commentary on, did God, did I promise him, or who promised him? Oh, that has a shared bear a love. No, the translation isn't adequate here. Okay. Uh, what God said God would do. Okay. Yeah, the Hebrew is explicit. Um, and then, after thinking about it, God decides he better tell Abraham. And Yudhe then said, the outcry in Sodom and Gomorrah, ki rabbah, it's so great, and their sins so grave. Erdana, let me go down, he says to Abraham. He's speaking to Abraham. Let me go down and ere'eh. Hebrew says, determine. What's the English? What's the, the English? What's the Hebrew? And I will see. I'm just telling you, that word is throughout this whole parsha. And I will see this sa'aka. That's what the Israelite slaves do when they call out to God. They cry. Their cry that is coming up to me. Asu kala that has stopped. Ve'imlo and or if it hasn't. And I will know. The men yes Bob? God's action here is diametrically opposed to God's action with Noah. Because with Noah, he says... Build an ark. Build an ark, because I'm going to destroy the earth. That's right. He doesn't ask Noah. He, he says, I'm That's going right. to do this. That's right. Now, he's in a dialogue with Abraham. Right. This is what I'm going to do, Abraham. What do you have to say? That's right. And the point, let me just share something about that, which is that there are many ways to read this. Uh, my, one of my favorite ways to read it, uh, and a lot's been written about this, is that God is figuring out how to be God. What, what, God has created these human beings, and if you read the story along the way, God has realized, oh, I'm not going to destroy them because they're always going to be like this. That didn't work. I, that didn't work. I love them. And remember, Noah is the 10th generation, and Abraham is 10 more. And now God's trying something else which is to enlist human beings as partners in... Certain. Hmm? Certain. Well, okay. Abraham's going to be a blessing to all the earth. It, God has selected Abraham to show these qualities to humanity. So it's a new effort by God to see if human beings are, are salvageable, basically. Are, are you know, and um, uh, uh, so Abraham is... The point man, Abraham, is the one, he's got an incredible task to do. Is he going to rise to the occasion? Uh, that speaks to uh, what you were saying. Gail? This is the same question, but I just noticed looking at it, it seems to be saying 
descendants will get what God has promised if they behave, they follow God's path. Well, they behave or at least, yes, yes. It does say Laman. I mean, Laman, that's right. Yeah. That's right. I never realized that before. Well, it's not in, it's a promise with a condition. So, that's right. And that's why the rabbis, in their close reading of the text, say that Abraham was tested ten times. Now the ten, they love that number ten because it's the ten generations, the ten, the ten commandments, the ten. So there's a lot of tens. Um, and they say Abraham was tested ten times. This is one of the tests of whether Abraham will be the person who can transmit this awareness and this awareness is fundamentally moral, right? In the Torah, there is no separation between an ecstatic experience of God and that what you come away from that with is a sense of justice and moral right. If you come away from an ecstatic experience of God as a, as, uh, as a what's the word, antinomist, uh, you know, as someone who thinks, ah, it doesn't matter, I'm just going to, everything matters. That's what you come away with when you contact the God of yod heh vav And so the test, this is one of Abraham's tests. How will he respond? If he passes all the tests, as it were, he's Abraham. And of course, because this is our story, he does. And some of the tests are diametrically opposed. right? In this test, God is asking him to respond. In the Akedah, when he binds Isaac, Abraham just takes the child. It's a different kind of test. That doesn't mean one is wrong and the other is right, or that there are even contradictions. Yes, Gail? It seems to me it's not just saying Abraham. It's saying if he, if his, if he chooses descendants so that they behave oh, yes. in way, only then will what I've promised come true. So that those who come after him keep the way and do what is right and just. But first, Abraham has to be tested. I understand, but it's but teach is also a very not, mild word. For we're not doing unconditionally blessed here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that be, let's see. Ki et beto. So that he will teach yitzaveh. He will command. He will, ins- he will, yitzaveh is the command form. He will train them. That might be a better word there. Teach is a very mild Yeah, train would be a better word, yeah. You could say that Abraham failed the test of the Akedah because for people he doesn't know, the, pe- the wicked people of Sodom and Gomorrah, he gives God a hard time. So come to, but for his own son, knew, right. For his own son, he, he doesn't say anything. So on Saturday, Jonah Ram, it's his bar mitzvah, and he's talking about this, uh, the Akedah. And, and he's given. He's a young philosopher. So if you can come Shabbos morning, you'll hear what he has to say about it. Yes, you could say that, or you could say what was the test. I've done a teaching about the Akedah that the test was whether at the last minute he'd have the presence of mind to say Hineni at the moment of intent, most intense passion of his life. Maybe that was the test. Uh, it doesn't say what the test is. All it says, and God tested Abraham. And said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and but that's we won't have time to do that today. But yes. <coughs> and there are other tests that the rabbis um, 
draw out of the Abraham stories, but these are the two most explicit ones. So in the few minutes we have left, here's what happens. The men now turned away and went down towards Sodom. These men are actually angels, messengers of God. So these aren't the three men that we Well, there's two with. left, because one had, a, each one is an angel, it seems, because one's job was to tell Sarah that she would have a child. And then there's two more, and their job seems to be to go down to Sodom and Gomorrah and warn them. Uh, and while Abraham remains standing, Lifnei Adonai, before yod Abraham then came forward. Vayigash. Vayigash is a Hebrew word that is about, it's really about, it's stepping up. Vayigash Yehuda. Judah steps up to, to uh, Joseph. Um, stepped up and said, will you indeed sweep away the innocent along with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 innocent in the city. Will you indeed sweep away the place and not spare it for the sake of the 50 innocent who are in its midst? Then he says to God, far be it from you to do such a thing, killing innocent and wicked alike so that the innocent and the wicked suffer the same fate. Far be it from you, and here's the kicker, must not the judge of all the earth do justly? Ho, <laughs> oh, that's chutzpah. And that's why we're the descendants of Abraham. Right. That's, that's how we wrestle with God. That's how we wrestle with God. We demand justice, even from God. That's my point. You want to be a descendant of Abraham? Listen to this scene. Go to the streets. Listen to this scene. Well, find your own way. Yeah. yeah. Find your own way, but identify the place where your backbone is and step up and say, it's time to, that, pe- that justice be served. There's, the innocent cannot be slaughtered along with the guilty. Oh, man, it's such a powerful thing, right to God's face. And it seems that in the story, God is looking for Abraham to do this. Maybe this is the test here. Shall I hide this from Abraham? Mm -hmm. After all, I'm assigning him this task of teaching what is right and just. Let's see if he's up for this. Well, the reason... The rabbinic tradition privileges Abraham way above Noah. They like say Noah was okay. Why? Because when God says, I'm going to bring a flood and destroy the earth, Noah doesn't say anything. He just follows orders. Whereas Abraham is considered to be the first Jew in the Jewish tradition because of this. He doesn't. He'll stand up to God if he has to for what is right and just. So if you're not a religious Jew, but if you've been standing up for what's right and just, you're a good Jew, right? Don't separate. Don't make some false distinction in our culture between what being religious is and what being righteous is. You know, that's one of our biggest problems is that we make that distinction. But why is God portrayed as being so wishy-washy? I mean, because really, I mean, Abraham, Abraham keeps, push, keeps pushing him. Well, what happens to this uh, 
See, well, we have. How about 20? We have the. It's, is it it? I don't know. What? I don't know. Giving it in the Torah. In the Torah, God is not the perfect being. In the Torah, God is on a learning curve. And God, and this is the Jewish way, God needs us to be in dialogue with the, with the, uh, what should I call, uh, moral center of the universe. Needs us. God needs us. Uh, in the Torah. So there are many versions of God. In the Torah, God is like flip-flopping and trying to figure it out and saying one thing and then saying another. And God needs us. And that's where Abraham comes in. In later, God refer, the, in Isaiah, Abraham is referred to as God's friend and beloved. Because what do you do with your friend and beloved? You talk to them. You don't let them get away with crap. <laughs> And so, isn't that beautiful? So uh, we have to stop there. But thank you so much for those beautiful questions and contributions. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Here's a basket. There's no charge for this class, but we accept your donations gratefully. Next Thursday. We are not meeting next Thursday. Oh yeah. Hey everyone, have you got?